You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. This episode, the 1913 Calumet Christmas Party Disaster, was first released on December 24th of 2009. Let's face it, any story with the word disaster in its title is not going to end well. In this case, a number of people, mostly children, were killed. Clearly, it's been many years since I first recorded this, so I'd forgotten the specifics of the story. It was nice to refresh my memory. And while I do talk a bit fast throughout, I mean, that's what us New Yorkers are very good at doing, I do think this is one of my better early recordings. So let's take a listen. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is on the 1913 Calumet Christmas Party Disaster. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd give you a multiple choice question on female inventors. Now, each of the four products I'm about to uh, list here... Uh, were invented by women. And my question for you is, in 1903, Mary Anderson invented which one of them? So in 1903, did Mary Anderson invent one, the brassiere, two, chalk chip cookies, three, liquid paper, or more commonly known as whiteout, or four, windshield wipers? In 1903, which product did Mary Anderson invent? Was it one, the brassiere, two, chalk chip cookies, three, liquid paper, or four, windshield wipers? I'll let you think about that, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story on the 1913 Calumet Christmas Party Disaster. Now, the holiday story I'm about to tell you is not an uplifting one at all. In fact, it's a really sad one that involves a lot of death. But in a lot of ways, the story is eerily similar to my eighth podcast, which was on the Shiloh Church Disaster. So I encourage you to go back and uh, re-listen to that one and uh, compare the two stories, see how they're similar. Now, this story takes place on December 24th, 1913, that's Christmas Eve, the same day I'm recording this podcast, in the village of Calumet, which is located on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. At the time, Calumet was a mining town in the heart of copper country, and copper was in great demand at the time due to the sudden need of the metal for the electrification of America. Now, Calumet consisted of two groups of people, those who spoke English and those, of course, that did not. And you can probably guess uh, which group ran the town and which ones worked in the mines. But things were not going well for the miners at all. They worked 10 hours per day in really awful, downright dangerous conditions, you know, for what you'd expect very, very little pay for their effort. And to make matters worse, the management decided to introduce a labor-saving one-man drill. Not just labor-saving, but money-saving one-man drill instead of the standard two-man drill that had been used back then. The miners saw this not only as a safety issue, but as a potential loss of workers. Now you only need one man to do the drilling instead of two. Basically, they knew they were going to be out of a job eventually. 
So tired of the long days and, you know, and very little reward, they decided to strike. And the miners walked off the job in July of 1913, and things turned ugly very quickly. There were numerous altercations between labor and management. Those are very well documented in the literature. Outside strike breakers were brought in from Chicago and New York to beat up the strikers, you know, break up the picket lines, disrupt their parades, and, you know, and do just about anything to wear down the miners. With each passing day, the divide between the two sides just seemed to grow wider and wider. Five months into the strike, Christmas was quickly approaching, and it was clear to everyone that this was not going to be a good Christmas for the miners or their families. And while our story centers on Calumet, I should tell you that the strike was widespread across Michigan copper country. I read uh, one story that 16,000 families with an estimated 30,000 children were affected by this great labor war. So this was not just confined to Calumet. In an effort to make the Christmas just a little bit happier, the Women's Auxiliary of the Western Federation of Miners decided to have a holiday celebration for the kids on Christmas Eve, and it was held on the second floor auditorium of Calumet's then five-year-old Italian Hall, and that's why sometimes you'll see this referred to as the Italian Hall disaster. The event was very well attended. Estimates uh, ranged between 300 and 700 people were there. Now, I have looked at some of the uh, old photos that were taken after uh, this disaster occurred, and my guess is it's closer to the 300, 350, maybe 400 people. I can't see how you can get 700 people into uh, this little auditorium. But it really doesn't matter. Everything started off really well. You know, Christmas tree was beautifully decorated and placed up on the stage. Songs were sung, you know, skits performed. And then jolly old Nick, you know, Santa Claus walked out on the stage and the gift giving began. Now, while most kids today would want a Wii or an iPod, these kids were dirt poor, and they were very happy to get gifts of candy, clothing, shoes, mittens, you know, gloves, whatever. Uh, they were very, very happy to get these gifts. Sadly, many of them would never get to enjoy these gifts. While there are many versions of what happened, it's generally agreed that around 4 p.m., someone in the crowd screamed, Fire! And then all pandemonium broke loose. The mothers and the few dads who were present grabbed their kids and ran for safety. But unfortunately, there was only one exit out, which required descending a steep flight of stairs down to street level. They were just unable to do so because the bodies piled up at the bottom of the staircase, and in the end, at least 73 people were killed, which included between 53 and 59 children. Uh, the exact total has been argued about ever since, mainly because some of the victims were immediately removed by family members before they were ever counted. So at least 73 people and somewhere between 53 and 59 children were killed. Such a small town was just not equipped to deal with something of this magnitude, so the Calumet Town Hall was set up as a temporary morgue. Both additional caskets, hearses uh, were brought in from other towns, and several days later there was a large funeral procession to the cemetery for 59 of the victims, which included 39 small white coffins. Many of them were buried in mass graves. It's just, it's just a really, really sad story, and the fact that it was Christmas Eve makes it that much sadder. In the aftermath, a couple of investigations left many questions unanswered, questions that are unanswered to this day. For example, how did it start? Did someone really yell fire? Uh, how many people were up in the auditorium? And of them, how many were really killed? No one has an exact number. And then what caused all those bodies to pile up at the bottom of the stairs? And the reality is that we'll never know for sure. Um, but I'm going to attempt to quickly provide you with some of the widely accepted theories 
and some suggestions as to uh, what really happened. First, how did it all start? There were dozens of witnesses that testified that a cry of fire was made in English uh, by a man standing near the door to the hall. Now, some were able to provide really good descriptions of him, including the fact that he was wearing a pro-mining company badge. So could he have been a company goon sent to disrupt the party? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Another person testified that it was a couple of drunken men that screamed the one word that produced such disastrous results. Yet there was one witness that claimed that there really was a fire. A woman said she was sitting next to a man whose son accidentally set his hair on fire. Now, one of the main problems in pinning down exactly what happened was the language barrier. Many of the miners were from Croatia, Italy, Sweden, and Finland and spoke little or no English. So during the first inquiry, many of the people placed on the stand were not provided with translators, so their testimonies were dismissed as pure gibberish. Uh, And since no one could understand them, that was the end of their testimony. A House subcommittee later had a hearing on the matter, and translators were provided for the uh, foreign speakers. And despite their testimony, it was never determined who blurted out the word fire. Then there's the question of how many people were in the hall at the time. As I previously stated, estimates range from between 300 and 700 people. And here's where my personal opinion comes in, so you can dismiss it if you want. But there are several photos of the interior of the auditorium taken shortly after the incident, up on the internet. So I simply counted the number of folding chairs, most of which were you know, still fairly well lined up toward the front of the room, and came up with a number of about 160 chairs. Figuring that maybe the same amount of people were standing up in the back, I figured there were possibly between 300 and 350 people in the room. Maybe it was more, but to me 700 seems just too high. So if you're bored, you know, just check it out yourself and do some counting and see what you come up with. Maybe you'll come up with a different answer. One of the biggest questions has always been, why did the bodies pile up at the bottom of the stairs in the first place? Now, it's very clear from pictures that the stairs were very, very steep, and people, you know, probably tripped and fell to the bottom and piled up there. But some people have claimed that the doors at the street level opened inward and could not be opened by the crowd uh, that was in front of them. You know, they're basically blocking the way, and the doors could not be opened. But then there have been others who claim that's a bunch of bunk, that the doors, it's very clear from images that the doors open outward. So I just looked at some more pictures again, and and this is opinion, of course, but I see two sets of double doors, one that opens outward and one that opens inward. And it's pretty safe to assume that since this was December in Michigan, that the doors must have been shut. So my guess is that the people came to the bottom of the stairs, there were so many people crowded in front, there was no way for them to open the inner set towards the inside of the auditorium. Now, the strike ended on April 12, 1914, after nine months, and the company agreed to an eight-hour workday and for the establishment of a grievance system. But it really did very little. There was a mass exodus of the miners from Calumet, uh, with many of them finding work in the more lucrative uh, Detroit auto industry. If you visit the site today, you'll find out that the Italian Hall is no longer there. It eventually fell into disrepair and was torn down in 1984. But what you will find is a grassy park with the original sandstone arch from the hall's doorway standing as a monument to those who lost their lives. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Constipation can be a problem for anyone, even doctors. When constipation occurs, it's interesting to see just what doctors consider important about a laxative they might use or recommend. Well, a majority of the doctors we heard from had this to say. A laxative should be effective, gentle, close to natural acting. A medicine that can be used with complete confidence. Now, X-Lax has been popular with many doctors and millions of people over the years because chocolated X-Lax is effective. Overnight. It helps you toward your normal regularity. X-Lax is so gentle, so close to natural acting, there's no upset. That's why many doctors and millions of people use X-Lax with complete confidence. X-Lax, the laxative that helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight. I know that commercial had an annoying ring to it. It kind of like the sound went in and out. But it just seemed like a, it just seemed appropriate for me this week. Uh, it's a kind of a one-man joke because I had a colonoscopy on Tuesday and had to take enormous amounts of laxatives. So this commercial just seemed to fit in what was going on in my life this week. Anyway, if you're curious, uh, XLAX was founded, uh, invented by Hungarian-born pharmacist Max Kiss, uh, and was first marketed in 1906. He was 25 when he invented it. He had come to New York City from Hungary uh, when he was age 15 and totally penniless. Then he had heard about Bayer developing phenolphthalein, which was a laxative. So he took that phenolphthalein and mixed it with chocolate uh, or chocolate flavoring to become uh, what we know today as XX. And they used phenolphthalein until around 1995 when it was determined that the phenolphthalein caused cancer in rats and mice. And of course, the formula was changed. Little side note is that uh, years ago, I used XLAX phenolphthalein as a pH indicator, just using an ordinary household product in my uh, science class. And I wasn't really paying attention much. And uh, it turns out I looked and the box was gone. Well, it turns out that one of the students lifted it and offered another, another kid in the class some chocolate and he ate it. And uh, from what he told me, he had an interesting night on the toilet that day. It's just a little side story related to XLAX. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call news of the weird past. And since it is Christmas Eve, I chose three stories from Christmas. And our first one goes back to December 23rd, 1937, which reported that in an attempt to provide a Christmas miracle, two watermelons were rushed from Port Arthur, Texas, to a sick man in New Jersey. It seems that Donald Worth of Neptune City, New Jersey, was gravely ill, and his doctors prescribed watermelon juice. But there was one really big problem, and that is watermelons were out of season in December across the entire nation. 
So it was broadcast across ham, uh, ham radio nationwide that these watermelons were needed for its juice. And somehow it was brought to the attention of Kyle Alley of Port Arthur, Arthur, who oddly had saved two of the melons from his summer garden for a Christmas treat. And he's very happy to send them on their way to help out a sick man. Our next little tidbit goes back to December 27, 1958, where Sergeant Charles Starks told of his oddest Christmas ever. And it occurred while he was fighting in Korea in 1951. It seems that when Christmas dawn broke, Starks and the other men in his troop noticed little white pieces of paper hanging about 20 yards in front of them. So they carefully approached the uh, paper, and it turns out that they were homemade Christmas cards. They were hung there overnight by the opposing Chinese troops. Now, uh, amazingly, not a single shot was fired that day. And our last little Christmas tidbit goes back to December 21st, 1968, where it's reported that Betty Watson of Redun, Quebec, was making the most unusual Christmas wreaths. She was making them out of discarded IBM punch cards. And that's a bit of a time warp for those of us who used computer years, years ago. I don't think kids today have any clue what an IBM punch card is. Anyway, they were actually quite attractive. There's a picture of them in the article. And she sprayed the cards with gold paint and then folded them over to give them points and, of course, assembled them into a wreath-like uh, shape. She then finished the wreath off with ribbon and pine cones. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I'd asked about Mary Anderson. What did she invent in 1903? And I gave you four choices. They were the brassiere, the chocolate chip cookie, uh, liquid paper whiteout, and windshield wipers. The answer is the windshield wiper. She had been born in Alabama, and on a trip to New York City, she noticed that the streetcar drivers actually had to roll down or open the window to see where they were going when it was raining. So she went home and devised the first windshield wiper, and it was, you know, cranked by hand. You just basically turned the blade back and forth. Now, initially, there was reluctance to use this. They thought it would cause more accidents, but once people started using it, they decided, uh, you know, that it was a great thing, and it caught on, and we've been using it ever since. If you're curious, the other three items, the brassiere was invented in 1910, at least the modern design of it was invented in 1910 by Mary Phelps Jacob. Uh, the chocolate chip cookie was invented in 1930 by Ruth Wakefield. And finally, the most famous one on this list is liquid paper. Whiteout was invented in 1956 by Betty Nesmith Graham. Her son, Mike Nesmith, uh, was one of the monkeys. Uh, anyway, so uh, it was Mary Anderson who invented the windshield wiper. 
I hope you enjoyed today's story on the 1913 Calumet tragedy, as well as our question of the day on the inventor of windshield wipers, listening to our retro sponsor, Xlax, and the news of the weird past tidbits on Christmas, uh, on the Christmas watermelon miracle, the Chinese Christmas cards, and of course, the IBM punch card wreaths. Uh, and if you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. They're both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or visit my website at uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. Lastly, as always, I'd appreciate it if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and uh, have a great holiday.